I'm going to welcome you to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. As always. Oh, yeah. I'm glad that you could be here with me. As always, my name is Dan Thoreau, and I am joined today by a very good friend, an online friend we've never met in person. But here he is, my dear friend, Tom Russell. Hello. That is his voice. Tom, uh, as many of my listeners will probably already know, is one of the two central proprietors of Holland Spiele Games. Yes, uh, my wife Mary and I run uh, Holland. She runs Holland Spiel, and I, I do my thing. Uh, but we have the company together, and uh, we we publish uh, games. So I have two questions for you. Mm-hmm. Um, just just to get to know you a little bit. The first is, of course, how are you and Mary surviving the uh, lockdown? Are you doing all right? We're we're doing all right. Uh, the the thing is. I've been full time at Hollandspiel uh, since early 2017. It's for about three years now. We've been working from home. Uh, me and my best friend hanging out all day every day. So hanging out all day every day, being at home is is not really very different for us. Obviously, we're getting out of the house less. We're not going on you know day trips like we were. Uh, we're not going to the store more than once a week if we can avoid it um Mm -hmm. so uh, i mean that that's a little different and you know it's also i mean you you worry about things you know you go out into the world and you you worry about other people being around you and that but as far as our our day-to-day how our life goes i mean it's been pretty much the same for us it kind of helps that we're more introverted and we're more kind of homebodies. So uh, mm-hmm. we're, we're, we're better off in that sense than a lot of other people. And uh, because we use a print-on-demand model, uh, you know, we have three vendors that we work with, essentially. Uh, one for cards, one for wood bits, and then one for everything else. And the one for the cards, the one for the wood bits, they're not doing anything right now uh, due to lockdowns. The one that does everything else, well, they're able to work out of their home. So they're able to continue to produce most of our games without there being uh, any uh, irresponsibility or any uh, leaving of the home. So oh, we're able great. to still take orders for games, and you know uh, we're, we're still trying to do that. The disruption has been that the next few games we have in our queue all have cards and or wood bits. And while we have some wood bits mm. piled up at home here, uh, we can't get the cards until the card printer is back up and running. So we can't release those games yet. So right now we're basically just trying to get caught up on things, get ahead on things, so that when the time comes, we can release those things uh, you know, as needed. And we also are looking at, okay, well... Are we going to have to move some things around in our schedule? And we're just playing it by ear right now, essentially. Now, Tom, one of my favorite games that you've designed and published on your own, of course, uh, is one of the games that makes me want to talk to you here today. And I, I think you know which one it is. Do you have a guess? Hmm. I'm, I'm going to guess it's uh, the Toledo War. Yes, let's talk about the Toledo War. I actually haven't played it yet. I would like to talk to you about this guilty land. Okay. Now you've mentioned that this is 
your opus. So why don't you tell me what, for those of our listeners who don't know what this guilty land is, why don't you explain it to me? And maybe don't go too much in depth. If you had to get on an elevator um, at, at a convention, oh my goodness! but it's a big elevator, perhaps the elevator in the Sears Tower. Is that what it's called anymore? The Willis Tower. I don't know what it's called. I'm not sure. You know, I've only... Because that's in Chicago, right? Yes. I've only been in Chicago once, and that was like two months ago. We did not stop to see the tower or whatever it is now called. Uh, we were going to try to stop to see the Bob Newhart apartment building, but uh, we didn't do that. So Apparently, it is called the Willis Tower. The Willis Tower. That, that's not as catchy okay. to me as the Sears Tower. But yeah. if you were on an elevator with a fellow game publisher, how would you tell him about this guilty land on the ride up the elevator of the Willis Tower? Uh, I would say that it is a game about the political uh, struggle and discourse surrounding the issue of slavery in antebellum America, uh, in which uh, one player... Uh, plays the role of, of justice and the other player oppression. And through the conflict of the two players, especially uh, as it interacts with a third non-player faction called Compromise, uh, it seeks to model uh, radicalization, partisanship, and to ask questions about uh, compromise and centrism. Mm-hmm. I, I think I think that'd probably be it for an elevator pitch. And then they probably would look at me like I was nuts and nod slowly and then, you know, back out of the elevator, I'm assuming. How does one back out? Of, that sounds dangerous to back out of an elevator. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just so why would you, maintaining so why would eye you contact just, and then, you know, walking, walking backwards. Careful in case you charge him. Yeah. <laughs> so why... Why would it elicit this response from our our uh, straw man publisher that you have so bewildered? Um, well, a couple reasons. One is that uh, is not a super commercial topic. I'm assuming this this straw man publisher is, you know, uh, a a normal publisher and not not a weird one. Um, I'm assuming. Uh, they would have concerns about, sorry, monster is playing with a small bird toy that makes noises. Um, <laughs> uh, I would assume that they would have concerns about, uh, how responsibly the game, um, addresses the subject, which is one reason why as an elevator pitch, I'm not sure how well, uh, it would fare. Uh, when we actually mm-hmm. lead up to the publication of the game, uh, we spent you know over a year explaining the game, its point of view, and how we were approaching it, uh, so we kind of control the sense of what the game was and what it wasn't, uh, so people couldn't project their own ideas about what the game was upon it in bad faith. You know, um, I think they would have concerns about one player plain oppression which is a legitimate concern as far as not everyone wants to do that 
if they're not a war game publisher, uh, but you know, a, a more broader hobby game type publisher, um, they probably wouldn't understand the concept of, of a game providing a model and driving meaning from, from observation of a model or, 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 or simulation. Um, like there's just this, a lot of people, like they just don't understand that kind of core concept that's, that's core to, to war gaming and simulation gaming, but it's kind of alien to, you know, folks who like meeples. Mm-hmm. So those are all, those are all reasons why I think, you know, uh, assuming a, a normal publisher, they'd be like, ah, uh, okay, that, good luck with that. So the first thing that I heard about this guilty land was of course, uh, a very shocking image, um, that you had posted. Um, the box itself is, of course, uh, it depicts a famous picture, uh, the whipped Peter, um, in which an escaped African-American slave um, from a Louisiana plantation known as Gordon um, allowed himself to be photographed. Uh, and it's, of course, uh, uh, it's in it's a very defining picture. Yeah. Um, and you had opted to use that image which is, of course, uh, very brutal, as uh, the cover on the box for the game. Now, what what led you to to make this decision to place this front and center? Uh, because this is obviously an image that, uh, and I know you've been responsible with this, and I'd love to hear more about the decision process there. Um, so, so what made you want to use this particular image as the first representation that some people would see of your game? I wanted the game to be clear about what it was and what its point of view was. Uh, I didn't want it to be sugar-coated. And mm-hmm. I didn't want anyone to come to it thinking um, that it gave equal weight to both sides. Because it doesn't. It has a very specific point of view. It's a very specific and very political argument. And um, I wanted to find a way to communicate the the the, the strength of, of 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 my convictions, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Of of what the what slavery was, what is at stake, um, and to be kind of confrontational and and to. Uh, center that rather than uh, a game where you know you you hide the thing i mean so what would an example of that be so something like uh puerto rico uh P- puerto rico to a degree because it, it doesn't even acknowledge the 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 thing that that is about you know at all yeah so there was an election game about the 1860 election uh in which if the game ended and the Civil War began, all the players lost. So the object was to win the election uh, without causing the Civil War. The assumption being that you could delay the Civil War, prevent it from happening if you found some way to, to bridge uh, the two sides, which those two sides can't be bridged. And 
I found that to be sort of like a nuclear option in Twilight Struggle. Yeah. And I, I found that to be really irresponsible. And and I think the the way the game was packaged and marketed really didn't confront what the game was saying or about, right? It, it didn't uh, mm-hmm. make the argument. So I, I, the thing with using that image, and we did think very carefully about whether or not to use that image, but it is kind of the, the iconic image of that subject, Right. I mean, we, we, we didn't oh, want absolutely. we didn't want to have something that just put politicians on the cover. Uh, we didn't want to have something that, you know, alluded to the Civil War, which takes place after the game. Uh, we wanted to focus on on the moral question at the center of it. And for us, that that was that was the image that that did that. And so it provoked reactions from people. So the moral question being, is it appropriate to own for not even for you to own a person, but is it appropriate for anyone to own a human being and treat them in this way? Yeah. And, and the answer to that obviously is that no, it's, it's not appropriate. And I, I was kind of discouraged uh, in the lead up to the game's release that, I felt like sometimes I had to explain that to people and I shouldn't have to explain mm-hmm. that to people in, in, mm-hmm. right. <laughs> in 2018. Uh, so you saw some pushback for using that image. I, I, I did. Um, now when I was going to, when we were discussing the game and discussing with some other publishers, uh, just to talk about, uh, the marketability of the game and whatnot. Uh, a lot of people kind of warned us that, you know, we were, they essentially warned us that we were going to get canceled. You know, that, uh, that there'd be a lot of kind of left-leaning people who would, would be really furious with us for, for doing a game on this subject. But that... Uh, oh, really? That was not... That's the, not what I would expect. Well... <laughs> Well, it's not what we expected either, and uh, it was more people uh, who were who were more conservative who were upset by the idea of doing the game, or who felt mm-hmm. that it was anti-American for us to do the game, or we had some nefarious agenda. You know, we're trying to comment on current politics, and I mean, really, we weren't trying to comment on current politics because I think that does a disservice to the history. But at the same time, mm-hmm. any historical work uh, is an act of engagement with history. It's a tale of two times, the time that you're you're recounting and and the here and now. Right. And so if there are echoes of the past in the here and now, uh, points of uh, that we can reflect upon, uh, it is important to, to realize that and highlight that. Uh, so we have people who felt we were pushing aside a political agenda. Uh, we had one guy um, who objected to the title. And, you know, and we explained the title's historical significance from uh, John Brown's uh, little uh, thing he wrote before he, he was executed 
for for uh, quote unquote treason to Virginia. Right. <laughs> uh, right. And you're referring to the quote where he says that the crimes of this guilty land can never be purged but by blood. Yeah. And and that and essentially is is the thesis of the game, in, in essence, that the Civil War was necessary and the game tries to demonstrate why that was the case, why the normal ways in which people uh, resolve these kind of conflicts uh, politically and through debate could not and would not work for this issue. And you can't really compromise your way through when it is a moral issue, when people are suffering. Um, mm -hmm. But there was someone who felt that that title was uh, attacking America. And, you know, I'm, I live in America. I'm, I'm an American. I am, I am proud of America at its best. And, and discouraged mm -hmm. by it at, 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 when it's at its worst. You know, um, I, I think the reason why American history uh, is often dark and hard to grapple with for, for folks is that the stories we tell ourselves about America, what we want America to be, there's sometimes a, a, a gap between that and, you know, what has happened. In the past, and a lot of that stuff in the past either gets papered over, or well, don't bring it up. You know, don't bring it up. We're past that now, and the the repercussions of of slavery and institutionalized racism, I mean, they they still exist. They're still felt right now, and that's one of the things that kind of drew me to making the game because it's not like I I, I chose that casually as a subject uh mm -hmm. I, in fact when i had the idea i really resisted it at first and for a long time that you know this is this is you know playing with fire i, I don't right. want to do this um but i kept being drawn to it and kind of compelled to do it and uh you know i'm glad that i did uh but it was you know a year and a half of my life kind of immersing myself in that period and in the primary sources of that period because mm -hmm. even though I, I'm not going to give the the pro-slavery arguments equal weight, uh, I mean, they, they absolutely do not deserve it, I needed to understand those arguments in order to point out why they were so false and, and in such bad faith and, and so intellectually bankrupt. And, um, you know, that reading that crap... Uh, please pardon my French um, is <laughs> I mean it's depressing and it's depressing because frankly a lot of the same sorts of arguments that were made then you can see echoes of them in arguments made today about other issues about uh, other moral issues about people suffering um, and it's so it was depressing it was really depressing and I was really irritable and and sad and angry and it's a very angry game as a result and it should be given the topic uh but there, mm -hmm. there's a reason why i haven't really come back to anything nearly as uh controversial as that or as as you know heavy as that 
because it, it does take a, a toll on on you as as a person, right? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Anytime that you investigate something deeply, I think there's a tendency that we often talk about in terms of uh, art, for instance, where we expect that it will edify us. Um, but the reality is, if something has the power to edify us, it also has the power to degrade us. Um, I think that that's unfortunately inescapable. There's no such thing as studying a topic without feeling marked by it. So with that, with that being the case, what is it that kept drawing you into it? It sounds almost as though, so you mentioned that you had this feeling uh, and then you resisted it. So what is it that pulled you into it? Um, part of it was having something to say and wanting to say something. You know, I've done a lot of games. I've done personally as a designer like by now like 50 some games uh and Mm -hmm. all sorts of different games right uh but and and all of them have to a degree some kind of point of view something they're expressing um something they're modeling but this was the first time when i i kind of consciously was trying to make an argument that I thought would have value to people's lives today, particularly regarding um, the issue of, of uh, the middle. Mm-hmm. Because um, the way the game models the compromise fra- uh, faction, uh, these, these are people largely who don't, who are against slavery, but also against abolishing it. Uh, mm-hmm. which was a kind of mainstream position at the time. Um, and right. that, that those minds were slowly changed. But even the official platform of Lincoln's Republican Party was, uh, we're against slavery, but we're against abolishing it. We still want it to spread any further. And, you know, the uh, the folks, uh, the abolitionists, you know, they, they weren't fans of this, uh, obviously, and, and legitimately. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's morally outrageous. But they, they did hold their noses and and vote for him um, because that is better than voting for a, a pro-slavery candidate, right? So, mm-hmm. um, but it's about those people in the middle. Like, well, why don't these two sides just compromise and, fi- and fi- find some some common ground, but there's no common ground on the issue of, hey, you shouldn't own, uh, beat, torture, rape human beings for profit. And the other side says, well, mm-hmm. yeah, we should. Like, th- there is no middle ground there at all. And the people in the middle saying, find a way to work it out. I'm so tired of, of, of you know, these, these politics as usual. They can never work together. That... <laughs> That's something that feels relevant to the current moment. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, I felt I could say something about that. And and I and I also was... I wouldn't say I was inspired by this because it actually happened after I started working on the game. But mm-hmm. uh, in uh, 2017... Um, I want to say it was shortly after the events in Charlottesville. Um, John Kelly, um, he, 
uh, says something along the lines of, you know, the the Civil War happened because there was a failure to reach compromise. And the fact is that that's manifestly untrue. The Civil War happened because of decades of compromise on what was essentially the original sin of, of our American experiment. Right. So... That those kind of attitudes being out there, I mean, it kind of continued to draw me to to do this game to do something, uh, and I also was drawn to do something more ambitious uh, than what I had done previously. Um, and part of that too was uh, working with Cole Worley and Infamous Traffic, to be frank, because um, that is a game that makes an argument and makes it through the mechanics of the game. Right, even an argument that in our contemporary moment, people don't necessarily want to hear. Yeah. And that just kind of got me thinking about what more can I do, you know? And all that kind of came together, and and then, you know, I I did it. (laughs) Um, And I'm I'm glad I am. So you so you've mentioned a thesis and you've mentioned a point of view and you've mentioned that it, it, it does relate in some ways to current politics, but perhaps you didn't uh, intend that originally. What would you say uh, is the thesis of the game as it really relates to compromise and those people in the middle? Uh, that compromise is impossible and immoral on a moral issue. And further, that it, uh, by maintaining uh, or seeking to maintain a sort of uh, detente between two sides uh, that are diametrically opposed on a moral issue, they inevitably uh, help prop up a status quo that that continues oppression. Mm-hmm. And and so, I mean. Within that thesis, there there is the question, of course, of how complicit is someone who is in the middle? And I think there are different answers to that for different people. And one thing that I'm, I try to do with the game is create a space uh, in which people could observe the model, um, observe what compromises, how it functions within the game and observe the deadlock and then ask themselves questions about uh, they themselves personally and how complicit or not they are and what's going on around them. Uh, and it's one reason why the game tries to have as much distance as it does. I'm, I don't really go in for uh, identification the way a lot of other game designers might, where I want people to put themselves in the shoes or walk a mile in the shoes of of, of this historical faction or, or actor, um, but rather to be removed from it. So while they're they're pulling the levers and whatnot, they have uh, some some Brechtian distance, as it were, which gives them space to to reflect and to question. So rather than playing as uh, perhaps a uh, specific convention, 
they play as something uh, remote, the, as, as in the abstract, broad idea of oppression. Yeah, and, and part of that too, I mean, frankly, is also trying to capture some of the, the didacticism of, of the period. Where, where the idea of, you know, personifications of, 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 of these concepts and talking in this, in this kind of uh, more morality play style, I think, fits the period in the discourse very well. So how do you represent this idea of, of a complicit middle? Uh, obviously, I know I've played the okay. game uh, a solid handful of times, but for our listeners, how did you go about writing this? into your simulation or model. You've mentioned that uh, with a war game, game background, it's very common to use simulations and models to elicit meaning. Uh, how did you do it in this instance? There are blue markers and red markers in different regions of the map representing uh, political influence or control, uh, however you want to phrase that. And each marker is double-sided with a compromise side and then a side aligned with the player faction uh, blue is justice, red is oppression. Uh, within the... was on the compromise side, um, it's not going... It's, it's more easy to, to persuade it to the other side when trying to pass laws. And it's mm -hmm. not giving uh, the full control that you want. Now, once you do uh, flip it, to your side, um, it's you know it's fully committed. It's on your side because generally, once uh, someone becomes an abolitionist, they don't back down from it. And once someone uh, fully embraces uh, arguments like like slavery is a positive good, um, they're not going to suddenly see the light. You cannot persuade mm -hmm. those people. And so it's very important that the game emphasize that, you know, you can't debate it out. You can't persuade someone who has a, a completely different point of view on an issue like who is a human being to, to, sure. to come down off of it. I mean, they might, through personal experience, that does happen. Uh, usually that happens when someone is personally... Uh, affected by it. Uh, for example, uh, there are stories about people who are um, anti-gay or anti-trans who have a gay or trans family member and may or may not realize how that they were wrong. You're not lucky to have that in a situation where the, the person you're trying to have that realization is owning another human being. You know, mm -hmm. there, there's that distance and that remove. So those two factions radicalize and become very rigid. Compromise is more in flux until you convince them one or the other. Uh, but generally, compromise is more likely to side with the oppression faction uh, within the mm -hmm. context of the game. Uh, so it's, it's trying to show... Um, that that middle kind of gets in the way of trying to get progress done, but also mm -hmm. is necessary because without uh, those turning those markers blue to begin with as compromise, you're not going to get 
as as justice the same uh, influence you need in the House and in the Senate to do things. So it kind of, the model kind of presents, I mean, it presents the argument, but also presents uh, counters and caveats to that argument. That that compromise is completely immoral on a moral issue, but is also sometimes a political necessity, and that is awful. And think about how awful that is. You know, it is essentially what we're trying to do with, with that that faction and, and with that within that model. Now I'm working on a I don't want to call it a sequel. It uses very similar uh, mechanics and foundations, um, uh, which is called the vote, and it is taking place after this guilty land, after the Civil War, and is proceeding through um, to the passage of the Nineteenth Amendment, which uh, secured the right to vote um, for women, and mm-hmm. that's a very different story. And they're the the kind of compromise faction, which I. I want to say I'm calling it apathy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> has it, it functions a little bit differently, and the two sides is easy. Well, uh, so the equality side uh, is able to actually influence and persuade the fully committed supremacy markers, because there is more leeway more to convince people on that argument than there was. Uh, in that purely racialized context before the Civil War. Um, so uh, so compromise didn't really feel like the right um, name in that case. And right. apathy felt more apt. And, and really, uh, you can argue that apathy and compromise kind, kind of go hand in hand as far, far as that, 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 that complicit middle goes. Um, because in a way, it's, it's, it can be a lack of caring. So it sounds to me, and having played uh, this guilty land, you you have a very coherent thesis, um, and obviously you express it very well in the game systems. So now, Tom, am I correct in that you did not attend college? You are definitely correct. I barely got through high school. <laughs> so... And I'm not. And the reason I'm asking this isn't to try to zing you. The reason I ask is because um, I spend a lot of time uh, at a university. Um, I teach at a university, and um, one of the first things that we teach incoming, uh, even grad students, not even undergraduate students, um, but when an, when a graduate student comes in and they want to, um, you know, pursue their next level of education, there's a great deal of attention paid to how they research. Um, They need to take some courses. They need to write some papers. They often go through a survey class that um, in my field, it's, which is history, you know, that we go through and we say, okay, so here are some of the great historians. Now here are some historians who challenge them. Um, Here's how you do uh, and some methods for American history, which is different from European history. And here's how you would maybe do a sexual history. And here's how you would do a queer history. And we do an examination of a, of a very broad amount of ways um, that these students can research successfully and not fall into some common traps. Um, some of those traps being, you know, taking documents a little too um, lightly, 
maybe not understanding them, not reading into their import, whatever it might be, um, or even falling into the trap of making an unintentional uh, argument that maybe isn't very strong. So we spent a lot of time doing this. So as, as you didn't actually attend college, I'm, I'm curious, and I would love to talk to you about where did you learn how to research um, in order to come up with a game with such a strong thesis and a model? Uh, because I don't think that that's necessarily something that comes easily to people. Um, oh yeah, that's, that's a good question. I'm not sure if I have a good answer, but I'll, I'll try my best. So I'm, I'm going to say I probably have two, two different answers to this question. Uh, okay. so we'll, we'll try them both. Um, so, so, you know, firstly, uh, I mean, yeah, I don't have any kind of formal training in, in any kind of rigorous research and, and that, that can be a liability. Um, one thing that I try to do through these games is I, I, tr I, I tried to think of them, uh, in much the same way, uh, a movie based on a historical period, uh, or a historical novel, uh, you know, historical fiction would engage with this subject. So I'm not creating a serious, uh, scholarly uh, ac academic uh, history, right? I'm creating a, mm -hmm. a serious work of art or a serious work of uh, what could uncharitably be called agitprop, right? Um, sure. So there, I'm I'm not necessarily looking for a hundred percent accuracy in the same in the same way, if that makes sense. Uh, you know, I, I remember getting into a discussion with some folks about uh, the game's kind of abolitionist viewpoint, uh, which is, you know, very absolutist that, uh, you know, slavery, bad, should end immediately. Uh, mm -hmm. No, no compromise. And while that was the abolitionist position, that position evolved over time. And, it, and there were certain economic and political factors that led to that position gathering momentum and while the game does model um how you persuade the the populace how, how you change those hearts and minds um some felt it was perhaps unfair to say the founding fathers who you know did not have that same absolutist viewpoint sure um and you know if i was doing a a a rigorous historical uh serious work of history in a way uh, probably the the full-blooded uh, abolitionist viewpoint, you know, is not sufficiently objective within the context okay. of the time. Uh, so, so in that way, I'm I'm not dealing with the same issues at the same time. Yeah, you, you one has to be careful. Uh, there, there of course is, is the famous example recently of uh, the person whose name I forgot uh, who did a book about the persecution of of, of gay men in Britain and uh, misread uh, a notation in, in, a, in a source as meaning that they had been executed when it meant that they had been released from from mm -hmm. prison 
this was a, a big to do uh, last year, the year before. Uh, I'm not blanking on the name, but you know that person did not have the kind of background where they could seriously research that. And you want to be careful not to fall into those traps. Now, how I generally approach my research is is that first, I want to have a general understanding of the period. I want mm-hmm. to have a, a, a framework or a context that I can plug other things into. And so I try to just to kind of immerse myself in it and just get, you know, surface level knowledge so I understand where all the pieces might fit. And sure. it's important to do that uh, without intention, without doing it like, okay, I'm going to build a game on this, so I'm going to be reading for that purpose. I really need to read just just for the pleasure of reading and of finding stuff out. Because otherwise, my brain is trying to find me- uh, mechanisms. Or my game sure. is trying to make an argument before I have all the information I need to formulate that argument properly. So a lot of that is, is kind of about being patient and just mm-hmm. make sure I'm always reading and tuning in on things. You know, uh, as an example, my Westphalia game, that game really started research-wise like 10 years ago, just me being interested in the Westphalian Conference and in the 30 Years' War. And having that knowledge to build on, I then could go deeper into things and go to more specialized things and look for primary sources. So I have a series of medieval games, and I really first needed to have a general grounding in the medieval period, uh, which is a very big, uh, it's really several different overlapping periods. But I needed to have uh, a general knowledge of that, which uh, growing up as a dork who liked castles and, and knights and so forth, I, I knew quite a bit. You know, I had that grounding, and then I could go deeper by reading primary sources, uh, like translations of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle or the Annals of the Four Masters, etc. Um, so, getting that framework first, and then trying to trying to fill in the holes and zero in on things once I have my my bearings is, is tremendously important. You know, the big reason people ask me sometimes, uh, you know, because I'm a war game designer. Um, about doing Napoleon. And the thing is, I would need to spend so much time grounding myself in that subject before I could even think about zeroing in on anything, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, you know, to a degree, American politics uh, and really human politics as far as the story of human rights go and who counts as a human being, who counts as a citizen. Um, that story doesn't really change in the broad strokes. Mm-hmm. And so I, I have that grounding immediately, and I have that grounding in kind of American discourse immediately, and then I you know start to dig deeper, start to look at primary sources, which thankfully a lot, a lot of things now even the craziest darn things, you can find them online. Sure. Which, you know, 10, 20 years ago, I'd be trying to hunt down books from the 1800s I that, you know, no one cares about. I wouldn't be able to find them. Right. So you've mentioned 
um, when we were talking about our straw man elevator companion, um, the need to show responsibility to a topic like this. Um, what are your own criteria that you hew toward or what are some landmines you avoid? How do you show responsibility when handling a topic that's this sensitive? Um, well, I mean, first there's there's being responsible and then, then demonstrating it. So being responsible, um, you know, a lot of it is playing by ear. A lot of it is asking myself questions and bouncing things off Mary and and trying to figure out how can this be misread how can be this, this be misinterpreted um you know what arguments do i absolutely not want to make and how do i avoid making those and am i making those well how do i avoid that and, and just trying to be hyper aware and and it's just a lot of putting in the work i guess just trying to be thoughtful trying to think it through and constantly doubting myself so I have an advantage there, a very big advantage, in that I'm I'm fairly neurotic about that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I doubt I doubt I doubt my judgment and and my value uh, the value of my work a lot. So I, because I'm asking those questions, um, I'm hopefully doing my 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 diligence. But then the next part is then demonstrating that diligence, especially with a subject like this, because the absolute nightmare would be. Um, someone seeing the game drawing incorrect conclusions about it and then running with it you know and the whole thing especially uh on the internet spirals way out of control so it was very important that we communicate uh, consistently and and effectively and i i try to stay away from sound bites but i did kind of hue to certain pieces of language I could use again and again and again in order to make it a consistent message and mm-hmm. to to be very responsive, to be hyper quick in responding to any questions or any concerns. Um, and, and, and to engage with whoever was asking about it and just doing that over and over and over again. And that, that's kind of exhausting, but it's what you have to do. Uh, there was a game... Was that last year? It was last year. Uh, there was a game. Well, it, I mean, it's, it's not coming out. But uh, there was a game that handled a sensitive topic, perhaps insensitively. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the uh, it was on pre-order from from a large company, and they didn't really communicate very well what the game was or what it wasn't, and people were allowed to draw their own conclusions. Those conclusions may have been correct. Uh, because they basically ignored any questions or concerns for about a month, uh, then released a, like a designer blog that didn't address them at all and seemed to confirm what people were thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And the whole narrative just got away from them. Now, I, I think they were able to say, okay, we're not going to publish this game and, and course correct. Uh, but that would have been a nightmare for us. And for a small yeah. company like us, I mean that 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 could have seriously damaged us. So um, it was so super crucial that that we approach it kind of thoughtful, you know, that we, that we approach it thoughtfully and and carefully, and that we just over communicate. Um, and so that's that's what we try to do, and it seemed to work out for us. 
Is that what you would consider the demonstrating half of responsibility? I mean, yeah, as far as saying, hey, I know you're going to have concerns about this. This is us addressing those concerns preemptively and showing you that we're engaging in good faith. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's not, you know, trying to wave the flag, like, look, look at us, look, look how great we are. It's trying to um, anticipate what concerns people might have and, mm-hmm. and show our work and show we are working in good faith and, and show how seriously we were taking it. Um, because, you know, and here's the thing, usually, I mean, I'm not a glib person, but, you know, people who have played some of my, my uh, less quote unquote serious games, you know, I have more of a sense of humor about it and, and I, I make goofy little comments in that. And I'm kind of a kind of a goofball and a, and a dummy anyway, right? But I couldn't... disagree, Tom. Pardon? I disagree about the dummy part. Okay. Tom. Well, I, I I mean that in a you know goofball, perhaps. Okay. But I could not rely on that at all. You cannot use that at all marketing a game like this, Guilty Land. Right. I mean that's that would not fly, and I would not want to do that. So it was really, it was a it was a tightrope that we had to kind of navigate, and I mean I think we we did it well because all in all, uh, people understood and accepted the game in the spirit in which it was offered, and those that didn't, um, were never going to anyway. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, and, and you know we we lost some customers over it. Not too many. I think we gained more customers than we lost. So have you been happy with the reaction to this guilty land? Is there anything you would have done differently now that you have 2020 hindsight? Um, you know, I, I can't really think of anything that, that we would have done uh, differently per se. Um, but part of it, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I what I try to do when I, when I reflect on, on a game in this release I try to see what what lessons I can apply to something else. So, mm-hmm. like in this guilty land, for example, there's a, there's a large degree of, of variance uh, built into the game. You can have some very lopsided effects from the draw deck. Um, sometimes the opening hand can be very lopsided, and that was a risk I was willing to take because it creates more interesting games than it does non interesting games. Mm-hmm. Um, but so now I'm doing the vote. Well, the vote I'm aiming for, you know, a somewhat broader audience and there I'm, I'm approaching it a little bit differently in that the first, I want to say 12 cards, to the deck, uh, they're seated at the top of the deck. So the first 12 oh, okay. cards to come out are going to be these specific cards that are these, what order they come out in and what the split is, I mean, that can vary. But it's not as high in the variance initially. And it, it mm-hmm. gives you more of, of a standardized opening that'll be less frustrating for people. I mean, the game can be very difficult to play well. Uh, people do seem to express frustration the first time or two that they play it uh, because they have trouble getting cards to come out of the deck. 
And that's really a skill in the game that you have to develop. And they'll feel that, you know, they're not really playing the game. The game is playing them. That that they, they have no control over the situation. Um, and in, in a marketplace where a lot of people play a game once and then don't play it again, I mean, that can be a liability. I mean, luckily, uh, we exist kind of to the side of the market proper where I, I can ignore that. If you're just going to play the mm-hmm. game once and then decide because you're bad at it that it's no good, I mean whatever i don't care <laughs> i really don't care you know uh i mean i, I really, really could care less so sure so you know i i've learned things from this guilty land uh you know mechanically and as far as you know how i'm making the argument how i'm showing my work but i wouldn't really do anything differently with it right I'm, I'm really proud of the work i did there uh it is i think the, the best game that i've done and mm-hmm. uh, I think it may end up being the best game that I ever do. I might do another 200 games, but probably this Guilty Land is going to be the, you know, the feather in the camp. Uh, okay. At least until Dinosaur Table Battles comes out, I believe, then, then that one's going <laughs> to overtake it. But uh, And I'm, I'm okay so, with that, you know, because I'm not really looking at, um, you know, there are people who look at everything they do, every game or every film as some kind of of major work. That, that everything has to be, you know, the, this, this great thing that expresses everything they want to express. And they end up doing four, five, six games or films or whatever. I mean, I'm, I'm working more in volume and I'm working more in what interests me. So I'm okay having major games and, you know, quote unquote, minor games, right? Sure. So I think the last relevant question is, um, what's your favorite dinosaur? What's my favorite dinosaur? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I told you I was going to ask the hard-hitting questions today. That is a hard-hitting question. Yes, you better get it right. I better get it right? Is there a wrong answer to that (laughs) question, Mary? And, And what's Mary's favorite dinosaur? I don't know if Mary has a favorite dinosaur. She loves all dinosaurs, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That's her official now how, now, how are we defining dinosaur? Um, I think broadly, because, I mean, like, Pteranodon, that's not a dinosaur, but we'll call it a dinosaur for, 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 for purposes of uh, it's cool looking and uh, a extinct thing from millions of years ago. Um, so we're not taking the narrow, like, dinosauria like archosaurian reptile definition where it's based on the spacing of their hind legs. No, it's, I mean, it, it it's more of a, does it feel like a dinosaur? I'll call it a dinosaur. Like with dinosaur table uh-huh. battles, um, you know, it's not very historically accurate. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> surprise, surprise for Mary. Um, a, a lot of it kind of falls into the uh, when fact becomes legend, print the legend kind of category. And sure. we kind of lampshade that within the game, saying like, hey, um, this probably isn't how this dinosaur did things, but pop culture tells us it is, so we're going to pretend it does it this way. And that's the effect sure. we're going to give it. Um, so I I like all sorts of dinosaurs. T-Rexes are fun. Everyone likes T-Rexes. I don't know if that's my favorite though. Um, you know, I kind of like uh, Stegosaurus because they're so dumb. 
right? Even by dinosaur standards, yeah. they have this massive amount of a body mass, and then they have a brain the size of a small dog. And that just so dumb. And <laughs> I, I identify with that. So I, I would say Stegosaurus, maybe. Do you know which dinosaur I would identify with? What? I would want to be an Ankylosaurus. Ankylosaurus sounds cool, yeah. I'm glad you approve of my pick, Tom. I mean, I don't need to approve of it. You, you can want like whatever dinosaur that you want to like, but... Uh, you know, No, Tom, you, I need your approval. You know what else I like? I, 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 I like the Stiggy Moloch, because it's not a dinosaur. It's not It's not a real thing. It's it's a young uh, uh, um that they thought was its own dinosaur, but, you know, isn't. It's just, just a, a baby, one of the other dinosaurs. But, you know, that's in my game because I like that name and it's cool looking. So I put it in there. <laughs> you know, if, if I if I was uh, sending this game to, you know, professional dinosaur people, they'd be very disappointed. Now, I want to get on to something that's maybe a little lighter um, than this very serious line of inquiry. Okay. Now, so as you know, uh, I recently talked to Aaron, Lee Escobedo. Yeah. And uh, we talked about you. I, I did hear that. Yeah. I'm like, whoa, wait, you're talking about me. What's going on? <laughs> now, so I'm going to ask you the same question that I asked her, and I would love to get your take on it. So... What are you? So you've talked about simulations. Are when when we're talking about a game, um, you know, she mentioned that Meltwater is very much trying to evoke a feeling, um, an emotional reaction from players. And your game, This Guilty Land, um, is trying to demonstrate something more systemic. So let me ask you: feelings or systems, Tom? And I want you to clarify, because you mentioned on Twitter that perhaps you had felt a little bit like we hadn't understood your stance. So I think some of the nuance might might have been missing. And part of that is me not being as articulate as I would like. But part of it, too, is 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 the context. So I, I first will say um, that, yes, obviously games can and do and should evoke emotional reactions. Um, and that's a perfectly valid way to create meaning and a perfectly valid way to approach it. Um, and you and I even have talked about some of the feelings that, that games can evoke, like triumph, uh, despair, uh, bitterness, stubbornness. Jealousy. Yes. Uh, relief. And so it does those very well. Right. Um, but what my my argument about systemic meaning is, uh, comes from it, it, it's, it's in response to a very specific question and that question is uh, when will board games create the same kind and depth of emotion as other art forms such as as film or literature uh, you know and essentially it's asking about when will it create empathy in, in a narrative sense when when will mm -hmm. my meeple fall in love when when okay. will uh, my meeple make Sophie's choice, and I need to have the Kleenex to cry for three days after playing the game? And 
I have problems with that question. Uh, first is 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 because uh, board games are not really a, a narrative art form in the same way. They create kind of meta narratives or emergent narratives, but they're not a a uh, strictly controlled narrative art form where you are telling a story from beginning to end with certain beats. And right. when they are that, they're they're boring. <laughs> Uh, but my problem with that question is that I think it's a question that inherently delegitimizes board games as an art form. Now, it's not meant to. The question is always needs to be asked in good faith in a very well-meaning way. Sure. But, but really, it's the same question uh, that was asked about video games 10 or 15 years ago. It was like one of the, one of the two pillars of like Roger Ebert's video games are not art uh, discourse was that uh, you know video games can't create those kinds of emotions. And in fact, when people try to say, well, yes, they can, the examples that they brought up were pretty bad examples, uh, usually games where uh, emotion was evoked either through the writing uh, of, of you know the, the written word on the screen or through cutscenes, mm -hmm. which both are just imitations of, of right. literature and of film and not something that comes out of playing the game itself. So that was like one of the two cores of, of Ebert's video games are not art argument. The other mm -hmm. core of it uh, was that uh, it could not be art, could never be art, even if it created those emotions, because uh, with art, there is an author and an audience, and there is kind of a strict hierarchical relationship between those two, where the author creates the art and uh, paces it and focuses the attention and shows you where to look and how to feel. And then the audience kind of passively receives this. And mm -hmm. by that definition, video games and board games could never be art. Um, now, I, I, have, I have problems with that definition for what are probably obvious reasons. But even within the world of film, that's not universally accepted. You look at a filmmaker like Peter Watkins, and his work explicitly rejects the idea of this hierarchical relationship between the artist and the audience. In his films, he tries to create space in which you can reflect on what's happening, argue with it, look at what you want to look at within the frame. And he does it with varying levels of success, but I mean, he is, I mean, he's a great filmmaker, and I really dig his stuff a lot. I actually had the pleasure of talking with him via email some years ago about how his whole approach would work really well in the context of video games. At that time, I was making video games, and that's what I was excited about. And he said, uh, yeah, that sounds great, but I'm in my 70s. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to learn something. I'm not going to learn a whole new art form, which, uh, you yeah. know, understandable. Um, and so... That in and of itself, you know, is problematic, but it's also because it, um, you can even apply this question of, you know, when will art form X do what art form Y does backwards even further? It's not really a new question. You look at the dawn of cinema, you had very similar questions being asked. And famously, the Lumiere brothers did not really see a future in film, either commercially or artistically. They thought it would just be a gimmick that would be around for a few years and go away. Mm -hmm. um, and people would, would ask, you know, 
this film, I mean, it, it can't do what a book does. It can't do uh, what, what a play does. And, uh, you know, even today, you still get the, the argument whenever a book is adapted into a film. Well, you know, the book is always better. The book isn't always better. The book is better for things that books do well. And the film is better for things that films do well. Now, some films are, are significantly worse than... You know, they're not a good adaptation. That's not that's not the point I'm making. But the art forms are different, and they're able to do different things. And you really only get this applied when trying to delegitimize uh, newer art forms. If you look at the mm -hmm. works of William Shakespeare, they've often been adapted uh, into opera or ballet. Well, no one going into the opera or ballet uh, comes out of it saying, oh, the play was better. Because the play <laughs> and the opera, or the play and the ballet, they're doing different things. And they're, they have different expectations for what they'll get out of that experience. And you don't have that being applied to them. You have that being applied to film at first. And still to some degree, there's a certain snobbishness there. To video games and to board games. And so that's why I have a, a kind of a problem with the question, when will board games do what films do? Because it's, it's measuring it by a standard that doesn't match the the qualities inherent to board games. So I so I, I will say that that is you know the wrong question. The question should be what does this art form do that other art forms can't, and that is where we get to you know systemic meaning. Because board games are systems; they're not just systems. They're systems laid bare, made transparent. Uh, unlike a video game where you kind of have a black box effect. With a board game, you not only have all these pieces and gears working together, but you can see the machinery. It can literalize mm -hmm. a system uh, and show you how it works, give you convey an understanding of how things work on a systemic level. And that can be very, very useful, I think, and um, can create an emotional response. Absolutely. But it can be very useful because it's hard to grasp things on a systemic level. Uh, humans tend to work uh, more on anecdotes, mm -hmm. you know, on, on on little stories rather than seeing a picture, a big systemic picture. And games can illustrate that. And so I'm not saying that that inherently is it better or worse than an emotional response. Uh, what I am saying is I think it's more interesting, and I think it's do, mm -hmm. it's, it's doing something that games can do that nothing else can do. And I think it's advancing the the state of the art, as it were. And part of that is a very selfish desire on, on my end to, to trumpet those kind of simulation model uh, games because, first of all, that's what I make. But secondly, you know, I'm, I'm in my 30s. I'm, I'm not old. I'm not young. But I'm, you know, I'm leaning more to one side than the other. I don't know how many, you know, decades I have left on this earth. But I, I want to see what games are capable of. I, I want other designers to show what games are capable of. And so I'm, I'm going to get on my little Twitter soapbox, right, and I'm going to talk about uh, systemic meaning and, and the usefulness uh, and of, of illustrating systems through games and how you can make political points and political art through games on a systemic level because I'll be able to see more of that. Whereas people chasing after, you know, when is my meeple going to fall in love? This is going to be like, you know, 30, 40 more years of, 
stupid twists, bad writing, stupid flavor text. Uh, I <laughs> so uh, from a selfish <laughs> perspective, I would rather see people try to advance the art form in a way that's inherent to that art form than uh, to have them chase after this thing that it, I don't think is going to be in reach. Not in my lifetime anyway. I mean, maybe 100 years from now, uh, 200 years from now, uh, there will be board games where they'll be just as, as, as emotional in a narrative empathy sense as a film. I, I, I doubt it, but I mean, it could be. I don't know. Because the thing about games is that they're actually not a new art form, right? They, games have been around for thousands of years. Games predate many other art forms. But we're still right. just kind of scratching the surface of what they can do, of what we can do with them, what we can express with them. So, you know, I I want to see that go in, into hyperdrive. Uh, and so that's kind of where where I'm coming from with that. If that does that make does any of that make sense? I feel like I've been talking like for thirty minutes. Well, you can talk for two hours if you'd like. Um, no, I I think it does make sense. I think some of it is that. A lot of it depends on the foundation we're building on. Um, so, for instance, I'd like to ask you uh, a question that obviously has been debated endlessly. And I, I have a wariness for definitions at the same time that I have a respect for them. Because as often as we, you know, to to delineate a thing is also to be too exclusionary. But before we can really talk about anything, we have to delineate it. Yeah. So it's a, it, it's the vocabulary paradox paradox of definitions. So I'm going to throw you right into the paradox and ask you the impossible question then. What is art? What is art? Oh my gosh. What is art? What, what is art? Man. You... I want you to resolve centuries of debate for me. And obviously I'm really asking, so what is the foundation for you? What is art to you? How is it that board games fit into this model where for Roger Ebert, they obviously did not. Um, how, how is a board game, how, how does it fit into that model as opposed to just being entertainment or a craft? So first I'm, I'm going to trot out my, my standard, uh, issue, uh, caveat that, uh, uh, definitions like, like categories are useful when they show affinities and, and uh, like you said, they're, they're less useful when they're exclusionary. So I have, I have a broad mm -hmm. sense of, you know, what is art? Um, <laughs> and, you know, you know what's a good definition of art? And you might have even have seen this. Uh, Scott McCloud did, did uh, a tremendously a useful and important book called Understanding Comics about the art form of comics. He made an argument for comics as an art form. And... Mm -hmm. uh, he essentially, I'm, I have not read this in like 25 years, so I, I'm not going to remember okay. it exactly. Well, you're going to remember it better than I have because I have never read this or heard of Scott McCloud. Oh, so he is like the big theory guy in comics starting around the 90s. So okay. um, some of it, some of his points of view are, are less... Uh, some of the things he has to say maybe don't hold water as much as, as other things. He gets really excited about, about theory, but he's like 
kind of like the original theorist behind comics. So, um, but his argument was anything that wasn't for survival or procreation is art. And Hmm. I believe the example in the little comic, he had a little caveman running around doing survival stuff, uh, trying to do procreation stuff. And then he made a fart noise and that was art. So, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, and I, I think, I think that's, I mean, that's kind of it for me. Any, any form of expression that isn't necessarily inherently, uh, essential, uh, is art. And that itself is essential because it's essential to actually living, not, not to being alive, but, but to living, right? Um, sure. I remember when I ran for office during my very ill-advised and short political career, um, I, I kind of stumped a bit for, for the libraries, which often had their budgets cut. And, and where I was running for office, uh, the police and fire department was like 60% of the budget in this super safe, um, predominantly white suburb. Oh, that did not need mm-hmm. that much police or fire. And mm-hmm. uh, the argument I made was, you know, the police and fire, they save people's lives. Libraries save people's souls. And that maybe was putting too fine a, a point on it. But I I do believe that art, I mean, art is what makes us people, makes us human, instead of just another kind of animal that makes you know, some a, a wider range of vocalizations. Were, was that inspired by James Oppenheim's Bread and Roses at all? I'm not familiar with that. So uh, that's what that's one of the uh, women's suffrage. Um, it, it comes from the speech by Helen Todd. Um, heart, you know, hearts starve as well as bodies. Give us bread, but give us roses. Gotcha. Yeah, right. But sorry, you were saying. Um, I mean, I, essentially, I, I think that's that's it because I one advantage I, I have, I think, uh, being someone who who creates art is that I don't need to be super specific about uh, my defini- definition. I don't need to be necessarily be consistent either, you know. Um, and I sometimes do this when I write my, my little blog things, my design theory things. You know, I, I will have different arguments uh, made weeks apart that are probably contradictory. But, you know, I'm okay with that. You know, mm-hmm. I, I uh, that's that whole Walt Whitman thing. You know, uh, very well I contradict myself. I contain multitudes. Maybe not too many multitudes, but uh, <laughs> I don't know, I'm a little heavier than I'd like. So maybe, maybe more multitudes than I thought. So would you say that all crafts are art? Sure. I'm not... might not be art that, that I enjoy as much. I'm not super... I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm not sports. That's not, my, that's not my, my bag, but, I mean, I can appreciate it, and I can appreciate the uh, aesthetic response. All shakes are art. All, what was that last bit? 
creatine shakes. Sure. I mean, I'm, 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 I, I, I'm just trying to yeah, no, at I, the edges. Of, I'm just curious. Yeah. I mean, and I'm pretty much just picking the stuff that I think is silly. Yeah. I mean, I might, I might think it's silly, but you know, I'll, I, I'm okay with it. I have, I have a very permissive sense of, you know, what, what gives people's lives meaning? What do they enjoy? What creates a, an aesthetic response? What enriches people? What, what makes people, uh, uh, better and more thoughtful human beings, you know, um, I, I could call any of that art and I, you know, that's, I'm okay with that. Is the atomic bomb art. See there, there I would draw the line and I can't tell you why, you know, I, I cannot explain why that, that one I draw the line at. I, I don't have an intellectual, uh, defensible argument for it other than, uh, you know, no, I, I don't think it's, it's art. I don't think war itself is an art, even though, you know, there's a very famous book, The Art of War. Uh, <laughs> but I, I don't, and it's just like, it's, it's just an intensely uh, personal reaction. Just like there are certain mm-hmm. uh, works of art that, you know, I I, I don't enjoy or don't want to engage with. And there might be other works of art that are very similar that I do engage with. And I, you know, I can't tell you why one uh, offends me and the other doesn't. It It's just a, you know, a very human, very emotional response because all art essentially does sure. produce some kind of emotional response. So in light of that, how would you like to see board games uh, and, and maybe this is more of a uh, self-centered question because this is something I obviously think a lot about, but speaking critically, how would you like to see board games uh, evaluated? I mean, it's going to vary depending on the game and depending on, on the critic. Um, I, I, th- I think the thing with, with any act of criticism is I, I think you, one needs to, evaluated by the 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 litmus it sets for itself for what it's trying to do now you also can evaluate is that thing they're trying to do worth worth doing because i'm I'm absolutely certain that if i evaluate it by the standards of what it's trying to do you know paul blart mall cop is is a is a terrific success i i don't necessarily see Mm -hmm. that as as something worth doing <laughs> you know, sure. so so I mean, that's that's kind of the big question, isn't it? And that, that's the difficulty of it, and then that's the thing about uh, why criticism is is important and difficult and hard. You have to be thoughtful. You have to engage with it, and uh, you have to have objectivity in terms of you know not coming in to hate the thing. And, and in terms of having a sense of judgment, having an apparatus that's finely tuned by taste and experience and expertise, um, mm-hmm. but realize that, you know, you're having a subjective experience. I mean, you have film critics like, um, I am blanking on her name. They, they named the general in Willow after her. Pauline Kale. Pauline Kale. Um, thank you, Mary. Um, and, you know, she would only ever really see a film once. 
never saw the point in seeing it a second time. It was always about the immediate emotional experience, right? And mm -hmm. that's a perfectly good, fine way to evaluate a film. Uh, I guess it's a fine way to evaluate a game, though I don't know how much value I get out of first impressions reviews, right? But mm -hmm. um, I, I, I see validity in that. But there's also sure. validity in a more analytical uh, approach or, or a, a more, I don't know. The, the only thing I, I, I don't need is, you know, a rating, you know, components, uh, eight, rules, writing, six, you know, whatever. I don't, like, that has no value to me. Other people, I'm sure it does, but those numbers aren't important. Tell me something about the game, right? Tell me something about you playing the game and your engagement with the game. When I was editing a, a magazine about games, uh, gosh, some years ago now, um, the one thing I kept telling people who, who were writing for me is, you know, show, tell me what it's like to play the game with you. Mm -hmm. I, I don't want you to tell me the rules to the game. I don't want to hear it's fun. You know, write with some pizzazz and some style. Convey something. Communicate something. And that's a lot. There's a lot of different answers, a lot of different blather. But really, there's so many different ways to approach it. Um, as long as it's being kind of approached in 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 good faith, I guess. You know, and uh, I, I don't think I need to tell you that I think you're one of the critics who was able to do that. And and I really appreciate uh, your work as a critic. Uh, well, thank you. That's very kind of you to say, Tom. Yeah, uh, you. I would say even when it's, it was a mixed review, you know, I get more out of that than I would out of most reviews where they're kind of not engaging with what the thing is or they're just kind of like, oh, this is so much fun. Like, I don't need, oh, this is so much fun. You know? Yeah. Fun is one of my uh, dirty words yeah. that I do not use. I, 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 I would even, I would love to get a negative review. I mean, I mean, I wouldn't, but I <laughs> like, I know, like, okay. Um, Mary just gave a long sigh. No, we, we didn't necessarily want a negative review. But um, I know that I remember uh, maybe sometime last year, I think you played one of my games, not a Hollenspiel game, uh, Northern Pacific. If I remember correctly, you bounced off it pretty hard. Am, am, I, am I right? I did. That? And that, you are. And, and it's, so I have a policy that I play a game at least three times and Northern Pacific is, ex is a textbook case for why I have that policy. Um, because we set it up and we played it. My friend Evan brought it down for us to play. He has a copy. I do not. And, um, and, and just playing through it, I could see some of its cleverness. Uh, I, I liked its Spartan style. And the group I was playing with was tired and grumpy from another game we had played. And so one member of our game group was just poisoning it for everyone. And he's a good friend. He doesn't always do that. Um, but it was the circumstances of that evening and an argument we had had over the rules of the previous game and that so-and-so was fatigued and, and, and all of those factors came together uh, and conspired to make me despise it. Um, now, if I were writing just based on one play, uh, and, and obviously there's some 
some degree of not, uh, lack of self-introspection that would be necessary for me to do that, I, I might pin that on the game. Um, but yeah, I, d I don't intend to review it just because it was, I don't have a copy and it's, it's been talked about plenty. Um, oh yeah. But, but yes, I did bounce off of it, but it was totally for social reasons. Okay. Um, so See, if I were to look at it more seriously, I would investigate it with probably a different group. I would make sure it was the first game we played instead of the fifth that night. So what were you going to say? Well, see, so I was kind of secretly hoping that that you re that you really hated it and and would be able to to <laughs> to give me like because that, that's actionable feedback, right? Yeah. You know, I I might not agree with the reasons that you hate it. But it would give me useful doubts, useful points for me to question sure. about my process and how I approach games. So, I mean, you, you can go ahead and, and keep enjoying my games and, and not hating any of them. That's fine. I, <laughs> but, I, but I, you know. Um, but, I mean, that, that yeah, stuff so I, can be I'm useful. I'm sorry to disappoint you by not hating your game. Yeah, I know. But that, but that stuff can be useful to me because if everyone just tells me that, that they like the thing, you know... I, I don't get a sense of what they like about it or what they don't. And I don't get a sense right. of what I, I can pivot to or from. You know, uh, I mean, like, table battles. Uh, now, that's, that's my most popular Highlands Field title. And a lot right. of people really, really dig it. I mean, we've had expansions. We're doing a dinosaur version. Um, <laughs> but there are people who bounce off it pretty hard uh, because of, of a specific element of it which is these mandatory reactions and if you so if you can react you have to react and if you do react you skip your action phase on your turn and there are people mm -hmm. who hate that and the thing is them hating it and I'm talking about why they hate it uh, I'm not going to change that. that that that's so essential to what the game is that without it the game does not work and they keep trying to fix it with variants and it just it doesn't work it falls flat but uh it it gives me doubts about okay what how am I designing this scenario for the game or these other games you know what and I can use that in a way that is more useful in a sense than you know everyone just digging it saying yeah it's, it's a cool filler game and I play it in twenty minutes and uh, my spouse who doesn't like war games well they'll play it with me uh, and that that's all great <laughs> I mean that's all what I'm going for but. Um, that kind of negative feedback uh, can be very positive in a way. Even, even, if it's, right. even if it's just for me to get stubborn and say, no, I'm going to keep doing this, whether you like it or not. <laughs> yeah. Right. And that's, I, I'm, I'm so glad you feel that way. Um, just because the quantity of people who in this hobby approach criticism um, as deeply threatening uh it it kind of surprises me to be honest in part because the reason i write negative reviews or write criticism even to, into positive reviews is never to try to attack somebody and it's certainly never because i want a game to be bad it's because i want games to be good yeah. uh, I, I want to see them grow i want to see them become better i want to see game designers learn from mistakes they've made and sometimes i may miss the mark but I do want to at least be saying it. Yeah, and that's okay. When you missed the mark, the uh, 
the fans of the publisher will uh, leave you lots of comments. Yeah, they'll they'll send me some nice notes, <laughs> letting me know that I've missed the mark. Now, so just one last question, Tom, and I'll let you go to bed because I know it's it's much later there than here. Mm. Now, so it sounds to me like you, I, I have considered implementing a ratings system. No, on my site, and um, I think you'll be happy to know that I actually am not considering it. Um, I was going to release it on April Fool's Day uh, that I was going to be releasing a, I try to do April Fool's articles, but not things that would put anyone into a sense of distress if they took them seriously. Um, I know, unlike you, I, I like April Fool's Day, as long as the jokes are in good taste and don't make anyone scared. Yeah, see, I, so um, you know this story, but your listeners probably don't. So I'm going to digress a little bit and then and let, you, let you continue with your question. Uh, but um, April Fool's Day, when I was a kid, I didn't even remember it was April Fool's Day. And I, I was, I mean, I was single digits. So maybe I was six, maybe I was eight. I'm, I don't know. My mom is in the kitchen running the garbage disposal. And suddenly she screams. And I run out there and she turns around with, with this bloody gnarled hand that's just geysering blood and it, of course it's fake right yeah but i'm a little kid right and i i am terrified by that and she thought it was the funniest thing in the world yeah see i don't like that kind of <laughs> april fool's no. joke I, I no one likes that kind of april fool's joke so here's i want you to rate my scoring criteria that i i decided not to do it just because uh, the entire month of march had already felt like a big cruel yeah. april fool's um, but maybe I'll do it next year. So here are my five scoring criteria that I was thinking of putting into every game. Do you want to hear them? Tom? Sure. So the first one was point salad scoring opportunities. <laughs> okay. The second one was Ian O'Toole art. That's, that's, that's a good one. As in a game would get 10 points or zero points, just yeah. depending on whether it had it. Um, quantity of box opening videos. All right. Mouthfeel. <laughs> That's good. That's good. And the last one is unfortunately one that your company would not do always that great on, which is toxic factory smell. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. That sounds like a good scoring system, I think. You know, it's good, okay. as good as any other. You know, it, it, what I like about it is how arbitrary it is. Because I, I feel yeah. if, if you, you know, the scores are meaningless, so might as well lean into how arbitrary it is. Yeah. You know, there's there's a uh, a podcast I listened to uh, about the history of the Catholic Church called Pontifex. Mm -hmm. And and it's, it's these two ladies <laughs> who they cover a different pope every episode or, or a different ecumenical council. Pretty cool. Um, and they will discuss the Pope that they're just talking about. One of them has done research and the other one just kind of reacts to it. And then they yeah. will rate the Pope in different categories as far as their um, contributions to the idea of papal infallibility, their relations to uh, everyday people, the longevity of their reign. And then they have a category for how handsome they were. 
uh-huh. <laughs> or how goofy their face is looking at, at these paintings. And I think, I mean, I think that that is perfect, right? Because it's it just, yeah. just shows how arbitrary these numbers are. Because anything worth communicating uh, can't be communicated by numbers. It, it is one reason sure. why why the idea of you know that games are math uh, irritates me so much. I mean, there's a mathematical component, certainly. But I don't sure. see them as puzzles or as math because that doesn't tell me anything. Yeah, you know, tell me something. So, and and what I like about your writing is that it it tells me something. You know, and I, I wish there was more of that and less unboxings. And I mean, unboxings are fine. I'm not I'm not complaining about. I mean, please continue to unbox our games as long as you don't <laughs> mention smells. Um, I, uh, but I, I, I want, give me something, you know, and right. I, I, I really hope as time goes on that we, we get more board game critics who, who, who give me something, who, who write well, when we get requests for review copies, I mean, we do look occasionally at things like, you know, w- what audience is going to get out to, but we're still such small potatoes that you know, if someone sends us an email like, "Here are my impressions, my hits for the month," uh, can send uh-huh. me a game. I mean, we're kind of predisposed not to send them a game, almost, right? Right. <laughs> uh, oh yeah. You know, I, I'd rather read a link. I'd rather get a link to what they've written, read it, and like, can they write? Can they tell me something? Communicate about the game. Is there something that I can take that and share it, and get people excited about the game? That's the kind of, of critic that I like. You know, and and that's uh, the kind of critic that that I want. You know, and you get a lot of film critics who do that very well, uh, but they're also professional critics, right? So I mean, you have a whole different bag of apples there. Uh, they're not right. hobbyists doing it in their, in their spare time. You know, but uh, it's you know, unfortunately, most board game critics are are like uh, you know the reviewers on Rotten Tomatoes, the user reviews. Sure, you know. Sure. Um, well, thank you. That's very kind of you. I feel similarly about your design principles, just in the sense that, um, you know, whether it's major or minor, um, I, I appreciate anyone who puts thought and research into their work. Um, one of the reasons, you know, I, I'm often asked why I don't cover more mainstream games. Um, there's a lot of big releases that I obviously don't cover. And it's because they're boring, Tom. Um, I, I, I'd agree. I agree with you. <laughs> there's, just, there's nothing for me to say. So I don't want to. Well, thank you so much, Tom, for talking with me this evening. And, <laughs> okay. And I really appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, thank you, sir. <laughs>